You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have David S. Moore. He's a faculty member in the psychology field group at Pitzer College. So, David, thank you for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah. Well, tell me about your work. I know it, it, uh, it involves epigenetics, so we'll you know define that term, but, but let me know what you're working on first, and then we'll go into it. Well, I have a little bit of a strange um, bifurcation in my work. I have empirical work that I do, I have theoretical work that I do, and they're related, but um, only if you understand the relationship between them. Um, the empirical okay. work is with infants. I work with babies uh, between about zero and nine months of age, looking at their cognitive and perceptual development, trying to figure out how they develop an understanding of the world, um, how they get ideas into their heads. Um, that led to, wow. um, at some point, um, questions about development and where um, not just our cognitive characteristics, but our biological, emotional, and other behavioral characteristics come from. And when you start thinking about development, pretty soon you realize that there's always something that comes before the period you're interested in. So even though I was mm. interested in infants, I started studying younger babies, and then I started reading a lot about embryos and fetuses and learned about conception, and then I started studying genes. And that's when I became interested in epigenetics, which is the um, study of how it is that experiences influence genes so as to contribute to our characteristics. Okay, well, yeah, maybe we could take the, the conversation in the same arc, you know, start with uh, baby stuff and then, you know, pun intended, baby step our way back to the, the genes, if that's okay with you. Yeah, great. Yeah, you know, it's, one weird thing is that, um, I don't think anyone remembers their own birth. And the strange thing about studying babies, I would guess, is, you know, they don't remember anything from that period of life. It's it's weird when you think about it, you know, you probably remember, or I probably remember like one-tenth of one percent of all the days that we have ever lived or less, but yet we are who we are. Right. So I don't know how that fits in with your studying babies, but, but what are some of the things that, that came to you that were really interesting or surprising when you were studying babies and their abilities? Well, um, First, let me address the question about um, infantile amnesia, which is the technical name for this bizarre phenomenon where none of us can remember anything from when we're little. And it's not only our birth we can't remember. Most of us can't remember anything about the first few years. And one Mm -hmm. interesting thing about that is that studies have been done to look at infant's memory. And the very first study that I was ever involved in when I was an undergraduate um, was looking at how long babies are able to remember things. And there's very good evidence that they do remember things. So the question then arises, why is it that if babies can remember things, 
we can't have those memories now when we're adults. And mm. no one knows for sure what the answer is, but my favorite theory is that it's because we organize things differently when we're babies than when we're adults. And so it's almost as if you imagine yourself getting a document and you throw it into a, a file drawer, but you don't yet have any organization to the file drawer. And then as the years go by, you ultimately develop an organization, but things that you threw in before you organized it are basically lost because now there's so much information and you can't find the old information anymore. Well, another thought I just had is like, you know, um, you know, like you don't remember the color of the carpet in your office or something, or, you know, like our reticular reactivating system filters out so much of what we see and experience. Maybe when you're a baby, I don't know, the the information just doesn't, the, the RAS filters out, I don't know, maybe almost everything because it's just, yeah, you're right. Maybe it's just not organized yet or it doesn't know how to organize the information. Maybe that's why it's lost. Yeah, maybe. Um, all I know for sure is that the data are pretty clear that uh, even newborn infants can remember things for short periods of time. And by the time babies are around four to six months old, um, they can remember things for um, sometimes as long as two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so stuff's getting in. It's just not um, accessible to us later on. But my work has not really focused on memory. Um, recently, I've been working more on a phenomenon called um, mental rotation, which is the ability to imagine what an object would look like if it was rotated in space into a different orientation. And as adults, all of us are able to do this very easily. We do it all the time. Um, interestingly, though, there is a lot of evidence that men and women aren't equally good at it. Um, men seem huh. average to do these kinds of mental rotation tasks a little bit quicker and a little bit more accurately than your average woman. And it should be clear that there's a lot of overlap between the distributions. So certainly there's some women who are great at it, some men who are not great at it. But on average, there's this really big sex difference. And it's actually the single biggest sex difference in cognition that's unrelated to reproduction. And nobody really knows where it comes from. But one of the theories people had was that um, it might be related to um, our evolutionary history. Some people were arguing that perhaps um, very early man would go off and do certain kinds of tasks that required spatial cognition abilities that very early women did not need, and so they didn't uh, wind up with quite the same kinds of skills. And I thought that was okay. kind of a crazy theory. I wasn't sure I believed it, and I thought... One way to maybe um, probe a little further would be to find a way to test mental rotation ability in infants. And I thought if I could do that, then I could show that there are no sex differences early on. But as you study babies, as they get older, you can figure out what it is that ultimately causes the sex differences. So I came up with a way to study, came up with a way to study mental rotation in um, six-month-olds. And to my shock and somewhat to my dismay, I discovered that there was actually a sex difference in six-month-olds. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, baby boys. Because the, uh, the nature versus nurture debate comes to this as well. Well, exactly. And all of my theoretical work has been about the nature-nurture debate and trying to get past it. Um, because as soon as you start thinking about what we mean by the word nature and trying to probe a little further about what's that all about, you, you start to spend a lot of time reading about DNA and genes. And um, when you discover epigenetics, you start to realize, hey, wait a minute, that original conceptualization of nature and nurture 
was kind of off base from the get-go. Oh, that's right. Okay, so this leads in perfectly. So epigenetics, as I understand it, it's the um, the ability for parts of a gene or a gene to turn on and off so it expresses itself differently in response to like environmental factors. Is that right? That is right. Um, although the way I think you just characterized it was that the gene is doing this to itself. And while that can happen in other cases, there are other elements in the genome that effectively regulate what, not themselves, but what other genes are doing in the genome. So where does, so let's say there's, um, you know, an evolution or sorry, there's an environmental pressure. Let's say uh, I live in a, in a climate where, you know, it's like a mile and a half above sea level and it's freezing all the time. You know, what will happen to me? How will I adapt to that? And what, what happens like epigenetically? What's your guess? Like what's, what's that scenario look like? Um, I couldn't really tell you because um, I am not sure that anybody's any, ever studied anything quite like that. Um, if they have, I don't know about it. And so mm. I wouldn't be able to tell you for sure. Um, but I can tell you that um, a variety of environmental stimuli have been shown to influence the characteristics we ultimately develop, including things like um, the foods that we eat and the um, exercise we um, undergo, the um, drugs we consume, and the experiences we have at the hands of our parents when we're growing up. Um, other things like social interactions um, can also affect our epigenetic states. So it seems that lonely people have different epigenetic states than people who have more uh, social interactions. And there also seem to be relationships with socioeconomic status. So hmm. the, the amount of um, physical and economic resources that are present in your environment when you're growing up seem to leave a mark in your epigenome so that um, we can see those effects later on. But I, I don't actually know much about altitude and temperature in this case. All right, well, let's, let's do an example of what you have seen. So what is an example of uh, an environmental factor that caused an epigenetic change, and what was the change, and how did it express itself? Um, the most um, interesting phenomenon um, that I can tell you about um, and one of the reasons it's the most interesting is because it's been the most well-researched. This was a finding by Michael Meany and Moses Schiff back in 2004 when they were working with rats. And there's reason to believe that what I'm about to tell you applies to um, other species as well, potentially even human beings. Um, mother rats will naturally lick and groom their offspring. They just um, like to lick their pups. Um, and right. there is variation in the extent to which they do that. Some mother rats lick and groom their pups a lot, some not so much. And it turns out that the ones that are licked and groomed a lot, when they grow up, they're adults that are less reactive to stress. And the ones who are licked and groomed less react um, more to stress. When you um, take some newly born rat pups and you cross foster them and basically adopt them out and let them be raised by mothers different than their own mother, they will wind up showing the characteristics of all the other pups that are raised by that kind of mother. So it's not a, a genetic effect, it's an effective experience. If you're licked and groomed a lot, you are not very reactive to stress when you're older 
And if you're not lictin groomed very much, you're more reactive to stress. And Meany and his team were interested in looking at how is it that the mother's behavior is influencing the offspring in this way when they're experiencing this very young, how is it that they can continue to be affected um, much later when they're adults? And the answer is epigenetics. The experience of being licked and groomed changes the actual chemical, um, well, it really does change the chemical structure of the DNA. It does not change the sequence of the bases. What we've come to know is the genetic code. It does not change right. that, but experiences like this can lead to the addition of certain kinds of chemical groups onto either the DNA itself or onto proteins that DNA is wrapped around, with which it has a close relationship. And the addition of these groups effectively changes whether or not the gene is expressed. So hmm. in the case of the um, mother rats licking groom their offspring, this process of licking and grooming leads to a removal of some of these chemicals from DNA, and as a result, there is um, more of the product created by the gene that's being affected, and that increased hmm. product makes the animals less reactive to stress when they're adults. That's amazing. I mean, what, what, is that, what did you feel like when you read that study? Were you like, that's crazy, or what was your reaction? Absolutely. I thought that is the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. Um, except that somewhere deep inside, I think I knew that it was not unbelievable at all because I've understood for quite some time that our characteristics emerge as a result of our genes and environments interacting. But I didn't know that anyone had the technology available to look at it on a molecular level and understand exactly how it is that it's happening. Um, it's been about 25 years or so that developmental scientists have understood the general conception that we are the way we are because of how our genes and our environments interact. But it's only been in the last uh, 15 years or so that we've been able to understand the molecular mechanisms by which it happens. So I thought it was completely amazing and really very exciting. So, so I would think that other environmental stresses, right, would change someone's epigenetics, like if they're a smoker long-term, or if they, again, like I said, if they grow up in a higher altitude or in a warm climate or a cold climate, or if they're you know, constantly stressed out for a number of years at work, I would guess that all these things would make epigenetic change in their body. I think there's good evidence to that effect at this point, yes. Well, do you have a feel for what kind of threshold is needed to cause an epigenetic change? Because, you know, if it was so simple, we'd probably be like chopping and changing constantly, but we don't seem to. So it seems like there's like a high threshold in order for something to make an epigenetic change in us. There are actually different kinds of epigenetic changes. Um, some of them affect DNA directly. Um, the primary kind is called methylation. And then there are these other kinds that I briefly alluded to where proteins that are associated with DNA are changed by the presence of these other chemicals, and that then changes what the DNA does. I bring this up again because they seem to have different um, levels of um, affectability for lack of a better word. Um, DNA methylation has long been thought of as a relatively permanent kind of change to the epigenome. Now, we know at this point that it's not completely permanent, but it's pretty hard to change DNA methylation. And so there seems to be a fairly high threshold for that kind of epigenetic mark. 
Mm. But these proteins that get affected, these are called histones, and histones can be affected by a variety of different chemical groups. They can be methylated, but they can also be um, acetylated. There's a a chemical group called ubiquitin that can also um, modify histone. And all of these histone modifications are much more amenable to relatively minor changes. So one example I can give you of histone modifications occurs when we travel to a new time zone. Everybody's familiar with, most people are, when you do this, you experience some sort of jet lag. And with time, you become accustomed to the new time zone that you're in. And there's been a question for some time, how it is that that happens? How is it that your body readjusts? And the answer is now clearly epigenetics. What happens is light in the new area enters the eye at a time when it's not really expected because your body thinks, you know, it's still 3 o'clock in the morning in Los Angeles where I'm from, and here I am in New York, and it's 6 a.m., and the sun is coming up. Light is entering the eyes at this unexpected time, and that has epigenetic effects on the histones. So this is an example of changes that can be implemented with a very low threshold. So it's very easy to make these changes. And so when you fly back to Los Angeles, the same thing happens again, and you readjust pretty quickly. So there's a hierarchy of changes. So like if I wanted to change my eye color, I would probably have to, I I guess, methylate my DNA differently, right? Um, I don't know for sure. I can tell you that um, if David Bowie were still alive, we could talk to him about the fight that he had that changed one of the colors of his eyes, but I don't know that anyone ever actually studied that scientifically and figured out how that happened. Oh, I didn't even know about that. Interesting. Yeah. So so what are some of the more interesting implications of this that have occurred to you, and what is it like, what are you focusing on right now in the epigenetic space because of what you know? Well, I think the most important thing, the large takeaway lesson, is that genes don't ever cause any of our characteristics independently of the context in which they're operating. If you take a um, bowl of DNA and you put it in the middle of the table, it's never going to do anything. Um, DNA only leads to development of characteristics when it's in a particular kind of context. And the various contexts that it can be in dramatically influence what kind of outcome you get. So we have had this idea for at least 100 years in the biologically related sciences that some of our characteristics are caused by our genes. And I think epigenetics research makes it very clear that that's not the case. Um, Our genes are certainly contributing to our characteristics, and they contribute to all of our characteristics but they don't do any of those things without some input from the environment as well. And so what's made this so exciting for me is the uh, discovery that nature and nurture really cannot be thought of as separate things because they are always Mm -hmm. interacting with each other right from the very beginning. Well, you mentioned you've been studying um, babies and then you've been studying embryos. Um, I I think I've heard that some epigenetic changes happen in utero. Have you observed that? Are you aware of any of that? Um, I haven't observed it because all of my work is done with babies that have already been born. So everything I know about prenatal development is all um, just from reading. But um, I can tell you for sure, based on that reading, that most of the epigenetic changes that occur to us in our lifetimes occur prenatally. And that's because what 
epigenetics were originally understood to do were to make our different cells work in different ways. So you might know that when a sperm and egg come together, they create a zygote, a fertilized egg, and that fertilized egg splits in two, and you wind up with two cells that are identical to each other. Those split into four, and then eight, then 16, and so on, and you wind up with this clump of cells, all of which are identical to each other. And these cells are called stem cells, and they've been in the news for the last 10 years or so, 20 years, because they can be used to um, treat a variety of disorders, and they can also be used to clone individuals. So they're um, very powerful, mm -hmm. and any one of these cells can turn into any of the different sorts of cells in the body. But as mm -hmm. development proceeds, the cells differentiate, and some become blood cells, and some become heart cells, some become bone cells, some become neurons in the brain. And it is epigenetics that leads to the differentiation of the different cell types. So what it is that really makes a nerve cell different from a muscle cell is the epigenetic state of those two cells. And as you know, a baby is born with different organs. They have brains and bones and, and muscles. And so all of the um, creation of those different cell types depended fundamentally on epigenetic processes. Is uh, epigenetic changes, are they a one-way? Well, I guess like you said with light, it's not a one-way process. Right. Or maybe it's uh, two one-way processes. I mean, how much of epigenetics is, again, irreversible and how much is not? There is debate about that. Um, when Meany and his team first developed their model and they started looking at mother rats licking and grooming their offspring, when they discovered what they did about what happens to the adult rats, they labeled the phenomenon epigenetic programming. And the implication in those words I took to be that something that happens early in life programs the body so that effectively you have a, an irreversible developmental path at that point, and you wind up in a different place than you would have. But I have always thought that that was a little bit um, premature and that we might discover ways to change epigenetic states um, after they've um, develop naturally. And at this point, there's very good evidence that that can happen. Um, in fact, there are, are a variety of drugs that you can expose animals to that will reverse epigenetic changes that they've experienced. So this, oh, has, really? led to, yeah, so this has led to a lot of excitement in various um, branches of the helping sciences. Um, psychiatrists in particular are very interested in the prospect of epigenetic drugs potentially being used to treat things like post-traumatic stress um, or addiction or other sorts of memory-related disorders um, like Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, that's so weird because now now it makes you wonder, you know, <clears throat> uh, let's say we take a medicine or a medication, you know, maybe uh, we have an infection and we take an antibiotic and now we're quote-unquote healed, you know, the, the infection's gone. But have we been changed epigenetically? Are we predisposed now maybe to getting that affection again or not again, or you know, we somehow changed where uh, we weren't the same as before, and did it happen on that level? That is a good question, and I don't know in many cases, but I can tell you for sure that um, antidepressant drugs are known to have epigenetic effects. Whether or not you take Zoloft and that leaves a permanent effect, I don't know, but there's good evidence at this point that antidepressant drugs like Zoloft have some of the effects they do by changing our epigenetic states. 
Well, what are some of the effects that have been have been written about in the literature? You know, from like you said, antidepressants and other drugs. What do they do epigenetically to people? Well, they all do the same sorts of things. They either put little methyl groups onto DNA, thereby effectively silencing those genes, or they put acetyl groups onto histones, thereby effectively um, making the genes that are associated with those histones easier to read and more productive. So on a general level, they, they all do the same sorts of things. Um, on a specific level, every single thing does something slightly different, and they do different things in different cells, and they do different things at different times. And so there are really no good generalizations that can be made. Well, you know what's even crazier is now if you think about the microbiome, what's happening to their <laughs> genetics as your as your body is exposed to different environmental stresses. I mean, right. we're just, I guess we're assuming, we're talking about somatic cells, you know, or human cells, but what about all the other cells that, and all the bacteria that live in us and amongst us? I mean, any insights right. there? Yeah, I, I don't know um, about how it is that the experiences we as humans have might affect the DNA in our non-human cells in, in the microbiome. And I think that's a really interesting and good question, and there may be people who have been studying that, but I don't know. The one thing I do know that I think is really interesting is um, I believe that there's some work showing that our microbiome influences the epigenetics of our human cells. And so I think that's really fascinating and potentially quite important. Yeah, because now you could think of a pathway of, okay, I want to make an epigenetic change to me, you know, or to a population of people. Do I do it directly or do I do it, let's say, through the microbiome? And then right. they, you know, make the change for us. Like, right. you know, a lot of bacteria are used, programmed to make a substance or act as a catalyst, et cetera. So maybe that's another pathway to affect change in people. Yeah, maybe. Um, the most complicated thing about this is that each of our cell types has a different epigenome. Um, that's probably not the best way to characterize it since sometimes people use epigenome to refer to our entire body's epigenetic states. But because nerve cells and heart cells and muscle cells are all epigenetically different from one another, it's very hard to imagine there being any kind of simple way to target epigenetic changes that you need to target because any drug you take, for instance, would affect um, all these different cell types, and you probably don't want to affect all those cell types. So there are some epigenetic drugs that have already been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, but they are only for certain types of non-solid cancers. And the reason they're approved in those cases is because the people with those cancers are at grave risk of dying anyway. And so mm -hmm. it seems worth the potential risks of all the terrible side effects you get from these drugs. Um, so mm. the drugs are, are proving helpful, but they have these terrible side effects because they affect different cell types in different ways. And my suspicion yeah, that's is... that's what I was going to say. That's crazy. That's, uh, boy, they're complicated. It's huh. really complicated. And, and so I think you'd probably wind up with similar problems if you tried to use the the microbiome as a vector, I, I think you'd still have the same sort of problem. But I can tell you that pharmaceutical companies are spending a lot of money right now trying to find ways to um, provide more targeted epigenetic effects. And uh, I suspect that in the next 10 years, we'll see that kind of work coming to fruition. 
Have there been any uh, longitudinal studies on, let's say, even just in, well, an organism or even a type of tissue, let's say in rats, have there been any, any studies where they could look at the epigenetic profile of, you know, I don't know, a rat's liver or something over its whole lifespan and see how it changes and evolves? I don't know very much about that. Um, I know for sure that some people have been looking at um, aging in general and looking at how it is that epigenetic processes um, contribute to senescence in cells when cells become mm. old and effectively die. So I know that there are applications in that domain, but I don't know enough about it to speak with any authority. Okay. A lot of fascinating stuff coming from this conversation. Um, I guess let, oh, go ahead. Uh, I didn't say anything, just said good. Oh, Glad no, there's no, interesting no stuff coming from the conversation. Yeah, uh, I guess I guess last last question or two. So, knowing what you know, and this is a broad question, what kind of implications occur to you that are you know fascinating or scary or wondrous? Like you know, what kinds of things have been popping into your head, you know, uh, recently after all your study? Well, on the the fascinating and wondrous side, those go together for me, and um, I I think I already touched upon what I think is most important, which is the takeaway message that genes don't cause things by themselves. Um, they always do things in combination with environmental factors. And so that points up the the importance of the contexts in which we're raised and also the context that we ultimately choose for ourselves. So I think that is, um, that's the most important takeaway message. When you start reading the, the details, it's all wondrous because it's it's just amazing. It's incredibly complicated, and it's it's a little bit intimidating if you um, were not trained as a biologist the way I wasn't. You you don't necessarily feel like you understand what's going on until you've really um, taken a very deep dive into this literature and started to understand what it is that's going on. And once you do that. It is absolutely wondrous. It's just incredible that the system works the way it does. But unfortunately, I can't really convey anything specific to you about that because it's just incredibly detailed, and I'm sure I would lose most of your listeners. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, take my word for it. it, it is really wondrous. On the question of what is scary, um, mm -hmm. I can tell you that there is a branch of this field that is controversial. And that is the branch that has managed to show that some of the epigenetic changes that we experience over the course of our life can be passed on to our offspring. And this is very much antithetical to traditional ways that biologists have thought about inheritance. The traditional thought since the late 1800s has been that our germ cells, sperm in men and eggs in women, are effectively isolated from what goes on in the rest of the body so that our DNA is effectively protected. And so it doesn't matter if, for instance, you have an accident and you lose some of your fingers in the course of your life. When you reproduce, that accident is not going to affect your offspring. Your offspring will still be born with five fingers on each hand. And that approach, that way of thinking about things, has been very important for evolutionary theorists. The problem is that there is now some evidence that 
epigenetic changes can be transmitted to offspring. Now, that is really scary because it means that the sorts of pollutants that we are currently experiencing could affect our great-great-grandchildren. Mm. Um, because that's scary, it has generated a lot of attention, and because these ideas are antithetical to the traditional ideas that biologists have had about inheritance, it's also drawn a lot of fire um, because there are arguments that it's inconceivable that this could be happening. And the reason it's inconceivable to some biologists is because um, epigenetic marks are erased, and they're ordinarily erased twice very, very early in our development so that all new organisms are starting from scratch. And because of that, it's generally thought that you couldn't possibly inherit epigenetic effects from your parents. In fact, the um, evidence that's available is strong. There's not a lot of it, and so there are not many cases we're aware of where an epigenetic phenomenon can be transmitted through the generations. It does not seem to happen very well, often. And there's that actually makes total sense, though. I mean, we certainly inherit from our parents, and then if um, a good percentage of epigenetic changes are not reversible, or at least not easily reversible, then why wouldn't they be passed on? If they happen before, you know, a person's parents uh, conceive, I can see that it totally it makes sense it would be passed on. Well, you know, it might make sense, but it also might not, because let's mm. say um, your grandparents were in um, World War II, and they were both um, experiencing starvation or they were experiencing the incredible stress of, of that war. In some ways, it doesn't really make sense for you to inherit anything from them because you're not growing up or living in that environment. Why should you be affected by the things that affected them? So I think a lot of biologists are not open to the idea that this happens. But the evidence is there that it does. It just doesn't happen very often. Okay. Um, any specific conditions that the evidence seems to say um, it makes it happen or allows it to happen? You know, like when, when will it happen? When will it not? Do we know enough to say yet, at least a little bit? We don't, just because there aren't enough cases of clear-cut evidence of it happening. Um, I can tell you that there is there are no cases that I'm aware of where it's conclusively been proven that this is happening in human beings, although there mm. is interesting circumstantial evidence. But the conclusive cases where we know for sure it's happening, um, those are happening in rodent species. And in those cases, um, things that seem to affect um, the grand offspring or the great-grand offspring can be things right. that are um, consumed by the, the parent generations, so uh, various dietary factors or um, drugs like alcohol seem to potentially have these long-term effects in some cases. Um, there's also some evidence that some pesticides can have these kinds of long-term consequences in rodent species. So it's wow. going to be very interesting as, as the next um, decades unfold to see what we discover here. But it is definitely potentially scary. And um, yeah, one last question. Uh, how many different permutations, how many different ways can, I don't know, a particular gene change epigenetically? Are there just billions of combinations, or are there only a few? And 
can you look at a gene and map its uh, epigenetic expression? Can you see which levers or which switches are up and which are down, on and off, or is it too complicated? You know, the the question itself is very complicated because there is good reason yeah. to believe that the the thing that we all think about these days when we think about a gene doesn't actually exist. I know that sounds kind of radical, but we have all been taught either that genes are these things that Gregor Mendel discovered and they make our eyes blue or brown because we have a big B or little b, but right. it turns out when you look inside the genome, there is no big B and there is no little b. Then there was a different idea that some of us got in like high school biology that said that a gene is a segment of DNA and it has a beginning and it has an end. But it's become very clear that um, our genome is used in different ways in different contexts so that a certain chunk of DNA can be used in one context in one way, but that same chunk can be used in a different context in a different way. And so most molecular biologists at this point will tell you that there is not any single agreed-upon definition of a gene, and that makes it very hard for me to answer your question because I don't even know what mm. we're talking about when we talk about a gene. So you, you, you would probably have to, like, sequence an entire creature's DNA and then look for differences in it by resequencing it later, or would you still not even see the differences that way epigenetically? Um, okay, so one, one thing to be clear about is that when you sequence a genome, um, so, yeah, last question. Um, so would you would you even have a hope of seeing epigenetic changes if you, let's say, you sequence the rat's DNA, the whole thing, and then you, you know, you perceive there was an epigenetic change and then resequence the entire DNA of the rat? Would you then be able to see an epigenetic change, or it's still too murky to be able to tell? Um, it's not too murky, but it doesn't work quite the way I think you're envisioning it. When you sequence an animal's DNA, what you're getting is information about the, um, literally, sequence of bases um, in that genome. Um, epigenetic marks are not detected in that sequencing process, and the sequence of bases doesn't ever actually change no matter what happens epigenetically. So if you sequence a genome early and late, you would always find the exact same sequence of bases. But that does not mean that there haven't been epigenetic marks added onto the um, DNA or the histones, and you would need to use a different process to detect those. And you can certainly uh, do those kinds of processes early and find an epigenetic state, and then you can do it later and find a different epigenetic state. So that's possible, but you wouldn't see it through a regular sequencing process. Okay. I feel like a little kid that, uh, that's playing with, like, the controls on a 747 airplane. <laughs> I know just enough to be dangerous, but there's so much more, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is incredibly complicated. I am quite sure that there's still a lot that I don't understand, but it's been a really um, exciting last 10 years for me when I've been um, digging my head pretty deep into all this stuff. Well, very cool. Well, uh, we're out of time. This has been a great call. Uh, definitely want to find out a lot more. So what's the best way for uh, people to reach out and maybe to find some of your work and maybe to engage with you if you choose? How can they uh, reach out? Um, well, I was kind of stunned the last week when I looked and discovered that I suddenly have a Wikipedia page. So I guess I'm a thing. Um, oh, cool. So you could find me by looking up David Moore um, as the psychologist, 
There are a lot of David Moores who do different things, but apparently I'm the one psychologist on there now. And that will um, give you some information about me. You could also find my um, page at Pitzer College, and it has all the information you would need to find my books. Um, I have two of them. And anyone who's interested in communicating with me can certainly get my email address um, off of the website and send me an email. That's great. Well, David, I really appreciate your coming. It's been a great conversation. Uh, it was my pleasure, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on the show. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.